You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. You can find podcasts, videos. Just go to AmericasWebRadio.com, and you'll be able to find last week's session of Healthcare Insight and future sessions of Healthcare Insight. This is only our second program. So I hope if you've listened to the first one, you enjoyed it, and you came back. If you're just finding us on this second broadcast, please go back and listen to the first one as we are doing a series of how we create a private health care system. I've had great responses from that first session. Let me respond to a couple questions that came in. One question is, is Obamacare in a death spiral? Well, the answer is clearly yes. Healthy individuals and groups are opting out of Obamacare, and less healthy ones are left staying in Obamacare. The individual mandate was eliminated as of January 1st, 2019, so it's no longer a requirement that everybody in the country buy or have some sort of health care insurance. Young people weren't buying it anyway. We already had 28.5 million uninsured, people who are willing to pay the penalty, or in fact the penalty is never paid because the only way the federal government can actually collect the penalty is if you have a health care refund. They can't come and uh, take money out of your bank account. They can't come and send you a fine. So there really was not a lot of penalty, and the penalty was relatively small. So... What's happening to small employers who don't offer health insurance but really would like to and the cost of Obamacare was too high? Well, many of them are going to self-insured plans. Self-insured plans are now available down to two lives. Can you believe it? Down to two lives with a combination of reinsurance products. They can now call themselves self-insured. They're called level premium plans. They're not really self-insured in the sense that a Coca-Cola or Microsoft or an Intel or a GM has self-insurance, but they qualify enough to get the exemptions from Obamacare. So if you can do some basic underwriting, which is required by the reinsurance companies, you can get into a better risk pool. You can do things that will help your employees stay healthy to reward and incentivize them in ways that you really can't with a small, traditional, fully insured plan. So the good groups, the good healthy groups, the younger life groups, are moving into self-insured arrangements and a separate risk pool. That leaves only the bad risks still available in Obamacare, in the Affordable Care Act, whatever name you want to put on it. So, yes, Obamacare is in a death spiral. As an actuary, I can now describe this as an actuarial premium death spiral. It is at its end. It's going to end, so it's not a matter of will we repeal and replace it. Question now for politicians, Republicans in particular, who are more believers in free market solutions and not in the Medicare for all that's being proposed by Democratic candidates. The question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to just sit on your hands and wait for it to die? And then you'll take the blame. So Republicans got to step up. And that's what we're trying to do with this series of programs. Describe how a free market solution can be put together and developed by Republicans, passed in the legislation at the state and federal levels. So, yes, Obamacare is in a death spiral. Let's take the second question that came in. 
Won't Democrats be blamed for the failure of Obamacare? Don't count on it if you're a Republican. The Democrats will say Republicans never offered an alternative, never put in new legislation to fix the problems of Obamacare. They just sat on their hands and let it die to the detriment of American citizens. And guess what? The media will go along with them. The media will support the Democratic line of thinking and push the argument out there that it's all the Republicans' fault because they did nothing during their years in power. So what about repeal, replace legislation? Well, you know, last time when that was attempted, it failed. When Republicans had control of the presidency, the Senate, and the House. Now, why did it fail? Well, many of us remember that famous thumbs down by Senator John McCain that kind of killed the legislation moving forward. But the reality is the failure of that legislation started long before John McCain did his thumbs down. There's a normal process that happens in developing legislation. There are committees that will review the ideas, will debate the ideas, will offer up amendments before it ever gets to the broader Senate. The real work of the U.S. legislature, whether it's in the House or the Senate, occurs in committees. That's called normal order. Well, the Republicans didn't want to go through normal order. They had a group an insider group of Republicans that put together a piece of legislation and tried to bring it to the floor. And while I don't agree with what John McCain did, he was voting against both his personal animosity towards Trump, without doubt, but he also was voting against the lack of traditional order of going through the legislative process. And that's why he voted thumbs down. Now, the reality is that wasn't the final vote. That was a vote to go to committee with the House version, which was also passed by the House representatives. And what typically happens in legislation is the House passes something. The Senate won't pass exactly the same thing. They'll have different amendments, some different language. And they get together in a committee and they work out a joint committee bill that goes back to both the House and the Senate. And both vote then on the same bill that comes out of that joint committee. McCain voted against going to that committee, so it wasn't final legislation. If he was really against the legislation, he could have waited till the end and voted against any final bill that came out of that joint committee, but he didn't. So is repeal or replace ever going to happen? Well, hopefully if the Republicans can get back the House of Representatives and maintain the Senate, maintain the presidency, we can do this, but you got to put together a bill that's got a process of normal order to get this stuff passed and get public support for it. There's a need for it. If Republicans don't do it, they're going to blame for the failure. So what is the solution? If we wind up with Obamacare in a death spiral and we get to a potential for repeal and replace, with a free market, private solution? Well, the solution is for Republicans to create that private market with appropriate government regulations. Too often, Republicans on the right side, the further right side than the center, the libertarian Republicans, the laissez-faire Republicans, don't want any government involvement. Well, health care is too complicated. You're going to have to have some 
regulatory authority to level the playing field between consumers and insurance companies, between patients and the healthcare industry that tends to try to deny them the care, make services not available, make services too expensive. You have to have some mechanisms. So the challenge for free market Republicans is how do you do that? You know, it's real easy to create regulations around an existing industry. But we're not used to, we've never come across an issue of how do we create a free market, consumer-based, patient-centered system. That's what we've been talking about and what we're going to continue to talk about as we move forward in these podcasts. Let's take another question. If you're looking at healthcare reform, what is the most critical reform issue that we face? Well, the most critical reform issue that we face is really the existing uninsureds of 28.5 million people and the under 50 life group market and individual health insurance plans. Insurance companies have controlled the legislation and regulation to their benefit. They're not consumer-oriented laws and regulations. That's where most of our uninsureds are. That's where many, many, if not most, all small employers want to provide health insurance for their employees. But they can't because the current Obamacare requires too rich a benefit, too significant a cost, and employees are left holding the bag without any insurance. you got to remember, when a small business is starting up, when they're, say, under 10 employees, maybe only a handful of employees, they're trying to survive. They're trying to develop a product or service that the public wants to buy. So they've got marketing expenses. They've got startup expenses. they got all sorts of regulatory and legal issues that they've got to pay for just to get started as a business. If anybody out there has ever tried to start up a business, you know what I'm talking about. It's not easy to be an entrepreneur. Yes, we have the best country in the world for entrepreneurship, but we make it harder and harder every day with the requirements to set up, whether it's insurance for the business, whether it's the cost of the space that you have to rent, the computer systems, all the services of trying to organize a board of directors, marketing staff, sales staff, HR department, all those sorts of things are required when you're going to start the a business, whether you're doing it all yourself or whether you've hired a few people. So it's hard to get an ongoing business. So one of the things that typically is left off the table when you're very small is health insurance. Because health insurance is a large cost. It's a large ongoing commitment. But with the current unemployment being so low, employers need a way to hire employees that differentiates them from any other competition in the marketplace. That means they want to provide health insurance. They want to provide dental insurance. They want to provide vision insurance, just as large employers do. They don't want to lose all their employee prospects to large companies. So as a result, we need to make that market more affordable. We need to have products and services that may not be the richest plans in the world, but they provide good, solid coverage 
for employees in a startup business? Because most people are really worried about their health care. What if an accident occurs? What if a, there's a car crash? What if one of my kids gets into drugs? What if my wife has got some medical issue that generates itself? A disease? A cancer? We need to be able to provide health insurance for everybody in this country if they want it. There needs to be a private market, voluntary system, and that's what we're, we've been talking about and what we'll show more over the next several sessions. So I want to thank everybody who started this process, who sent in some questions. We're going to start to talk about these issues in our next segment. So let's move forward and begin the discussion once again on how do we create a private free market system that covers everybody who wants to have insurance with good coverage, affordable coverage, covers pre-existing conditions, guaranteed issue if you want it. Sounds impossible? No, it's not. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back and dive right into how to create a free market private health insurance that you as consumers should be demanding, should be wanting, and you as elected officials listening in should want to pass new laws and regulations to make this happen. Welcome back to America's Web Radio and the program Healthcare Insight. We're glad you're continuing to follow us. Now we want to get back to building on the ideas of how do we create a private free market system? How do you as a consumer understand what's possible out there, what you should be looking for, what you should be anticipating in terms of post-Obamacare? What are the things that could happen in your state, even with Obamacare, and states asking for state innovation waivers. We're going to talk about all that. This is not pie in the sky. This is not academic solutions. These are real tangible issues and potential solutions that are being discussed at the state level and at the federal level. Healthcare is going to be a major issue in the upcoming presidential election. And it may be after the presidential election that we'll actually get some federal legislation that will give some relief to consumers out there they're looking for more affordable health insurance products to get some relief to patients who are out there trying to access good quality health care from the providers that they trust. The doctors that has the most important relationship between any patient. It's that patient-provider relationship that needs to be strengthened. But we won't get to any of that until we actually step back for a moment and say, What are the basic principles that we want to develop a new system around? What are some of the ideas that are so important that we need to keep those in mind as we propose and develop a new system of health care? 
Well, number one of the basic principles would be consumer empowerment. Consumers need to be knowledgeable about what's affordable in terms of health insurance, and they want health insurance that covers pre-existing conditions. So consumer empowerment is the number one basic principle. How do we do that? How do we create a consumer empowerment environment where today it's been an insurance company empowerment? Consumers had very little influence on what's available, knowledge about transparency of costs, how or why they might be able to access insurance, why they're turned down for insurance. Number two, voluntary participation. Individuals and employers should not be forced or mandated to secure health insurance. Insurer's participation should also be voluntary. We should set up a system that if the insurers don't want to participate, that's fine. But we want to set up encouragements that insurers will actually want to participate in this consumer empowerment environment. We should create market advantages for these new products that insurance companies would want to be participating. And for companies that don't want to participate, those advantages should not be available to those insurers that don't want to participate. Item number three in basic principles, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility means Consumers or patients taking ownership for good and bad health care and health decisions. You know, Obamacare put everybody into a single risk pool, so it didn't matter what your own personal or even company approach was to helping people with good decision-making around health and health care. Well, the alternative to that in developing a system is to focus on personal responsibility and saying everybody also has a right to be in their own risk pool. If I'm doing good things, if I'm making good decisions, I should be in a risk pool with others that are making good decisions so that our costs are lower, that we're doing things that help keep us healthy, we're doing exercises, we're eating good foods, we're not taking risky situations that endanger our safety, Our driving habits are good. All the things that would create good health, along with our own personal genes. Some have good genes, some have bad genes. But we should be able to deal separately and more effectively with people who have bad genes, don't take care of themselves, or had the maladies of life just happen upon them. It wasn't their choice. They could have been doing the greatest decision-making in the world but they have cancer, they have heart attack, they have some disease that's debilitating. We should be able to take care of those people. In fact, any system of personal responsibility that lowers costs for many people doing good decisions also has to be a system that takes care of the sickest among us. So we're not talking about a system, which actually used to be part of the pre-Obamacare health insurance environment. That kind of took The bad decisions, the bad luck, people who had diseases, either at birth, an accident occurred to them, or the maladies of life happened upon them, and kind of shunned them aside and put them into what I'll call high-risk pools, bad coverage, high cost. We kind of wanted those people to be 
to just go away. Just forget about them and say we have an outlet for them, but it really wasn't. So personal responsibility includes a lot of different items that we need to be sure are taken care of in any new system. Fourth item is choice. Choice means personal decision options for insurance coverage, for medical care, for treatment plans, providers, compliance, participation, lifestyle options, wellness activities, disease condition, support programs, service conveniences, and educational sources. There are choices all over the place that we need to make as consumers. We make choices every day and every other purchase we make. We decide the level of sophistication, expense, quality, brand name, all those things. We make choices every other day in every other place. We need to bring those choices to healthcare. And it's not just choice about insurance coverage and medical care. It's choices about all sorts of things that we do even after we purchase insurance, after we've seen our doctor. Are we going to be compliant with care? Are we going to change our lifestyles? Do we have certain wellness activities that we participate in to help stabilize our condition? You know, a stable diabetic is a lot less cost than somebody who's not and has to be rehospitalized, may go blind, lose a foot, have all sorts of complications. So choice is a very broad term that has to be built into the system. We need to be able to give people choice. It has to be market-based. It has to have a legal and regulatory system that allows an open, competitive, free market health insurance system. I mean, that's the key. We've been talking about a private free market healthcare system. It has to be market-based. But market-based doesn't mean no government. It means limited government. It means appropriate government. It means focused government. So there is a regulatory environment that we will describe and lay out for you to help create this private healthcare system that actually works for consumers, works for patients. The sixth basic principle is increased competition. Robust competition in an open free market is the best solution to lower prices, better services, higher quality, greater convenience, and more choices. Unfortunately, in today's world, we actually have very limited competition. There are fewer and fewer insurance companies to even buy products from. There are fewer and fewer products that we can even buy if we go to any one of those. In terms of hospitals and doctors, there are fewer and fewer choices. Hospitals are buying up other hospitals. They're buying up physician groups. Physician groups are coalescing into larger physician groups, all on the basis of needing more power to negotiate with the other parties, the insurance companies that are setting the rates. Hospitals need to get bigger to compete against big insurance companies. Physician groups need to get bigger in order to compete against bigger hospitals. They need to be able to market themselves as admitting physicians to hospitals so they have access to the services to be able to provide the surgeries and the care that patients need. So we need increased competition. Number seven, ownership. Ownership means consumer possession of the financial assets, the choices of how we spend personal care funds, and the right to information regarding one's own personal health and health care records. 
we need to take ownership of our own health. We need to recognize that health is our own human capital. What makes us valuable to anybody else, our family, our friends, our community, our job? It's obviously our education, our knowledge, our creativity, our relationships, our networking. But at the bottom line of all that, it's our health. If we don't take ownership of our health and recognize that without good health, all that other stuff goes away. It doesn't matter that you're educated in some fancy program, that you've got some credentials after your name, some letters after your name, professional designations, Ivy League colleges, whatever you want to put there. If you don't have your health, none of the rest of that really makes a lot of difference. Eighth basic principle Portability. Portability allows individuals to continue coverage regardless of their employment status and or job changes. Policies do not rely on employer-based insurance, should be encouraged and expanded. The individual marketplace, which is a relatively small part today of health insurance, needs to be expanded. Ninth item is transparency. Market-based systems can only be effective with an abundance of information easily available and understood by consumers. Transparency of information for cost, quality, and treatment options. You cannot have a free market unless there's information out there for people to choose and make the good decisions. Now, transparency is a term that many would argue against because it's an industry term and many people really don't fully understand or appreciate that transparency can be argued against by many of the people who don't want to disclose prices because they'll say those prices are proprietary. I don't need to disclose my cost relationships between the hospital and the insurance company. They may be different from somebody else, and I don't want them to know what that cost is. So I prefer the term the right to know. If there's data and information out there that the consumer needs to make good choices, they have a right to know that data. They have a right to know those costs. It's hard to argue against the right to know where some would argue against transparency. So I would replace right to know almost any place I see the word transparency. Number 10 as the item of basic principle. Use of technology, health Healthcare and health insurance all need expanded use of technology to lower the costs, improve efficiency and effectiveness of coverage, and appropriately identify and distribute information. Technology is clearly the wave of our future across society, and it clearly is the wave in health and healthcare. Unfortunately, the way technology has affected health and healthcare today is that more technology means more cost. In every other business, technology lowers cost, but somehow in health and healthcare, Technology increases the cost. So here we are once again at the end of this segment. Let's take a break from Healthcare Insight. And we'll be right back with America's Web Radio and our next section in just a few moments after these words from sponsors. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. Now, we've just been through the 10 basic principles 
of a health care reform system that is possible, that we can establish, that legislators can pass laws and regulations around, that federal government and state officials can actually implement. Even with Obamacare in place, state officials and government can allow for some flexibility from Obamacare and implement the ideas that we're talking about. Well, I want to talk about a transformational change from a government-controlled, government-regulated health insurance that we have to now that's dysfunctional. We don't want to move into more government that's even more dysfunctional, but we want transformation. And if followed, those principles that we lay out, the ten principles that we established, will lead to an effective and smooth transition from a dying Obamacare system while maintaining most of the positive aspects of the Affordable Care Act. I remember the Affordable Care Act wasn't all bad. I know Republicans and conservatives, tea marketers, etc., formed in opposition to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. But the reality is there are certain parts of it that were very logical, very appropriate, well-received by the public, and are parts that we need to retain and build into a new system. So the whole idea of repeal isn't necessarily repeal all aspects of Obamacare. It's talking about repealing the law and then taking the good aspects of Obamacare, the good aspects of that law, and building it into a whole new law that really will provide the kind of coverages and care that people want and people need. So the second outcome that we can expect is consumer engagement. Consumers will become more involved in their health and health care decision-making if we structure this thing in the right way. Engagement will come from financial ownership, whether that's health savings accounts, whether it's recognition that we can control how much out-of-pocket expense we're going to generate if we do some healthy activities, we maintain our health, we follow the doctor's orders. But consumer engagement goes beyond the financial. It includes health literacy, that is, understanding what your health and health care needs are, what the treatment plan is, how to help support what your doctor is trying to do. It involves decision support tools, understanding what the options are within your insurance plan, what are the choices that you can make after you buy insurance that will help lower your costs, what kind of rewards and incentives can you get if you're doing the right things? You're maintaining your health. You're keeping your health care costs lower. Can you share in the savings that otherwise would go to whoever the risk-bearing entity is, typically the insurance company or your employer or the government? But you need to be engaged in all those choices. The third outcome that we can expect is real behavioral change, not just cost shifting from one part of the healthcare system to the other, not from one person to the other, but how do we really change behaviors? Consumer empowerment and engagement will lead to that kind of behavioral change. Behavioral change includes wellness, prevention, early intervention, compliance with proven care and treatments. It's about plans encouraging personal involvement, well-being, and altering health and healthcare purchasing behaviors. The real issue here is as we move forward as a society, as we move forward as individuals, as we move forward as employers offering 
benefits to our staff? How do we encourage behavioral change so that we're just not ignoring our healthcare status and hoping that some pill will solve whatever we need down the road? Or that surgery is going to replace that joint that's going bad on us because we've been doing risky behaviors and we've been doing things that our body did not really expect us to do. So how do we change real behaviors so that people can listen to their bodies, understand what their health care needs are, and take care of themselves for a longer, more productive life? The fourth outcome from all this really is affordability. You know, Obamacare was passed and it's called the Affordable Care Act. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act is the full name, but the emphasis has always been on affordability. It's a great term. Unfortunately, Obamacare was not affordable. Affordability is not just about the premium dollars one pays and the out-of-pocket costs, which is what Obamacare was all about. Affordability is also achieved with financial rewards and incentives earned through healthy choices and behavioral changes. Now, the rewards and incentives concepts are talked about a lot, especially with large employers. And we've said already that we'd like to bring some of these same concepts that work for large employers down and available to small employers, to the under 50 life group and the individuals. So affordability is not just the premium that you wind up paying after you've discussed which coverage you want at your kitchen table, but it's after you've made that selection between this year's enrollment and next year's enrollment, the things that you can do, the activities you can get involved in, the services you can access that will actually give you rewards and incentives that might fill in your entire deductible and coinsurance with the financial rewards and incentives that that are provided under that plan. The fifth of nine outcomes that we can expect is maximizing the financial options. In any program, we need to have lots of choices, as we've mentioned before, as part of our basic principles. Well, financing, financing options for health cut claims should consist of three parts. Personal budgeting for premiums or minor costs. We can set aside dollars. They don't necessarily have to be pre-tax dollars, tax advantage dollars, because they're relatively minor. It's like buying any other good or service for your home, your clothing, furniture, dishes, food. You can afford small costs that can be set aside. So that's your personal budgeting. How much out of your income are you going to set aside for budgeting for health care costs? The second of these three parts is third-party reimbursements or insurance. And that's the thing we're really talking about at its core of these presentations is health insurance. How do we create a third-party reimbursement system that minimizes third-party but maximizes the potential coverage that you're going to need? And there needs to be lots of choices for third-party reimbursements, insurance programs, self-insured, fully insured. They have to be options of health health maintenance organizations, PPOs, EPOs, traditional insurance, all sorts of options for third-party reimbursements so that people can choose the one they think best suits their needs, not a one-size-fits-all as required under Obamacare. The third item is savings. Personal savings or tax-advantaged savings is a real key here 
health savings accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, or flexible spending accounts. These are the different types of savings that you can have. They're not just for your personal budgeting that come out of your paycheck each week, but things that you can actually set aside and take advantage of, and especially if you take advantage of them with uh, tax advantage options that are available. The sixth outcome that we can expect is insurance for the sickest. Now, the last segment, I kind of alluded to this, but the real key of any healthcare system is that no one, no one can be left behind. Health insurance is about financing and financial security when sickness or accidents strike. Any new healthcare system should help the sickest patients with impaired conditions get the best care, the best treatment, and the best understanding of their condition through financial and information empowerment. We don't want to let anybody left behind. In fact, we need to develop a system that focuses on real sickness care, even though we call our system health care. The real issue is that most of it is about sickness, and that's where we need to provide our focus. Helping people who are sick, who have illnesses, whether that's congenital, whether that's something that happens to them uh, when they're young with an accident, whether it's when they're old and they develop the natural maladies of life, we need to take care of those sicknesses and help those people in every way we can, give them the best care and treatment that's possible. The seventh outcome is we can eliminate the diversity of outcomes, whether it's social, racial, geographic, or other categories. The diversity of outcomes can only be addressed once the segmentation of the existing healthcare system is eliminated and Americans are covered in the same system, treated by the same provider groups, empowered with the same information and decision support tools. The diversity of outcomes in our society, along racial lines in particular, is unacceptable. We can do better. We can develop a private healthcare system that gives care and treatment to people who need it with their own special needs, with their own requirements, and sometimes healthcare in different communities mean different things to different people. Healthcare in one community might mean safety issues, better police protection, more lighting, better grocery stores, more food choice options. So we need to think about that as we're developing this new system. The eighth area of outcome is a culture of health. A culture of health focuses on wellness and prevention rather than on disease and treatments. Health insurance products should measure and reward participation in wellness assessments, compliance with a condition management program, whether that's taking medications, diet, exercise, office visits, maintenance of good health characteristics, and monitoring of key biometrics, blood pressure, cholesterol, nicotine use, body mass index. These are things that a culture of health would focus on and people would begin to recognize and understand. The last and ninth area of outcomes that we can expect, different from our current system, with a focus on the future, is what I'll call holistic care. Holistic with a W in front of it. Holistic, like whole. There are four aspects of human existence. Mental, physical, social, and spiritual. Health should be viewed as a dynamic state of well-being within an individual that includes these four areas, mental, physical, social, and spiritual, that are in the right balance. A focus on health recognizes 
the potential to improve the status of an individual need, regardless of their diagnosis or condition. But the reality is that we need to focus on the entire individual. We need to be able to bring somebody to the help that they need when they need it in a holistic way. There are lots of different ways to help people with their health care. And the outcome really is a much more emphasis on the issues that we mentioned here, behavioral change, the transparency so we can actually understand and get involved in our health and health care, the culture of health, the holistic care, helping each other. There are so many different areas that we should and could do, and that's what we're going to build an outcome based upon the basic principles we've talked about. So let's take a break and let's move forward to the next section of actually outlining the details and the beginning the structure of this new system that we've been talking about. So we'll be back in just a second. Please join us when we come back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. You know, we're going to start to get into details and build the actual system and how to create it and how consumers can access a better health insurance program. Find those programs that are actually available out there to the varying degrees of what we've been talking about and what we're going to outline as we move forward. States willing to pass consumer empowering and appropriate health care legislation will reap immediate benefits immediate relief from Obamacare and set a foundation consistent with the eventual passage of any federal private market reforms, which is coming. We're either going to go one direction or another. We're either going to go to a nationalized health care system, single-payer, Medicare for all, if one party gets in power. And if the other party gets in power, we're more likely to have to face the reality that Obamacare is in a death spiral and that we've got to do something to replace it with a private market reform. Those seem to be the only two choices at the moment. That or delay is not an answer. Delay is only going to mean that Obamacare dies and nothing is put in place. Delay is only going to mean that the public is going to have an outcry for the federal government to do something, even if it's not the best choice, because the general public doesn't know or understand all the complications, the results that may come from a government-controlled system. So we've got to do something. That's the long-term vision, is to pull everything together. The short-term is to get something passed to actually replace Obamacare. So let's get into 
the real details of how this all is going to work. So let's be clear on private markets versus socialized medicine. Those seem to be the two directions that we're heading. Well, in 2018, surveys showed that Americans prefer private health insurance solutions over expanded government control of health insurance. 71% of Americans are satisfied with their current employer-provided health coverage. Socialized medicine and government-controlled health insurance is seductive. The concepts of expanding Obamacare to socialized medicine are simple to explain to the voting public. Socialized medicine is generally promoted as everyone having equal access to universal care. The reality for patients is equal delays and limited services for all in need of treatments. You know, Americans have little knowledge of the problems, restrictions, limitations, time delays, poor quality of facilities, and limited services in a socialized system. Well, I have studied the German socialized healthcare system. I was invited a number of years ago by Angela Merkel to come over and look at the system with a group of other actuaries and healthcare experts. And what we found is the terms solidarity is frequently used in praising government-run healthcare. In Germany and other European countries with socialized medicine, the reality of solidarity is a false concept. Government officials, unions, teachers, and other favored groups have access to better insurance and health care than does the general public. The Joe Sixpack, just sitting back and needing health care for himself or his family, is not given the same coverage as somebody who is in one of these preferred groups. A recent Reuters poll found that Americans initially supported Medicare for all, 56% to 42%. That's a pretty good majority, and I think that's what's driving a lot of the 2020 presidential election debate around Medicare for all. But that same survey found that once people are told that a government-run system could lead to delays in getting care or higher taxes, support for Medicare for all, plunged from 56% to 26%. So the message here clearly is that Republicans better have an alternative, better have an answer, better have an explanation for the impact of a Medicare for all system and how a private market system could really get people the health care that they want. Everyone knows that the United States spends a larger portion of our GDP, our gross national product, than any other country in the world. That sounds bad, resonates as a negative across political lines with fiscally conservative voters. But existing U.S. government-controlled programs exemplify out-of-control spending, waste, fraud, abuse, and the lack of modern technology. The government is, in fact, today the largest payer for health care services. The VA system, the VA health care system, where military service members can wait for years for office visits and need care. President Trump has at least signed an executive order to allow private market alternatives for veterans. That's going to help a lot. Everyone over 65 is in Medicare. 
It's required. It's mandated by law. But Medicare is rampant with fraud. The coverage is so inadequate that Medicare supplement policies are needed. If you're over 65 and don't have a Medicare supplement policy, you're not going to get the kind of coverage and care you need. And the greatest concern of anybody over age 65 is outliving their assets. So you need a Medicare supplement in case you're one of the few people who has something that keeps you in the hospital beyond the 150-day limit that Medicare provides for. The Trump administration is promoting and supporting the private market alternative called Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage covers 365 days. It covers many more things than does Medicare. It's a private market alternative to Medicare. It's allowed as a replacement for Medicare, and it gives you more benefits, typically at lower cost. It does depend upon your geographic market, where you are, as to whether or not insurance companies have a private market alternative. But they're generally available through most of the country, and it's usually a much better deal. Medicaid, let's talk about that for a second, is typically considered insurance for the poor. Medicaid may be the worst possible option for insurance. It's been on the government watch list of the most fraudulent program for decades. But in spite of its many flaws, Obamacare expanded government-controlled Medicaid. So you put all that together, in 2017, the government, the federal government, paid about 43% of all health care expenses in the United States. Of the $3.5 trillion spent on health care, about 18% of GDP, $1.5 trillion is directly or indirectly financed by the federal government. So the real debate is, what do you do with the 200 million people that are in private insurance? Are they going to stay there? They have new options? Is something going to be created to, to support that market? Or are they all just going to go into government programs? Well, the practical political debate is not over eliminating government involvement in health and health care insurance. The debate is over the growth versus the limitation and reduction of government controls. So let's talk about employer-sponsored health insurance now. 60% of Americans, or 176 million, are primarily covered by employer-sponsored, employer-subsidized health insurance. And individually purchased policies are generally 10 to 15 million, roughly 11 million, but up to 15 million. It's hard to get a full count on these because many people have coverage in both areas or have multiple policies. So the numbers are a little bit um, different according to what source you go to. And, you know, the main argument for Obamacare was to solve the 47 million uninsured people that the country faced in 2010. It's one of the big arguments for Obamacare. But today, under Obamacare, 28.5 million remain uninsured. So the Affordable Care Act, while it successfully expanded coverage about 18 million people, it did it mostly by expanding Medicaid in many of the states that took advantage of the Medicaid expansion and the government funding of that. Other states said, we don't want to expand Medicaid. What we have already is problematic enough. It drains our state coffers. We can't do education. We can't do road uh, repairs. We can't do various other public service projects because Medicaid is just soaking up all of our state dollars. 
And while the federal government was willing to pay 90% of that increased cost, the concern was what happens after that money runs out? What happens when the federal government changes that? Does that burden go back to the states? Can they really afford it? Because once you provide the benefits, you can never take them away. So they're looking for an alternative answer, something that instead of having government subsidies, can we create private market subsidies? So 176 million people with private insurance were unnecessarily swept into the Affordable Care Act with its burdensome government rules, regulations, benefit mandates, and pricing increases. So we are all affected by Obamacare one way or another. Some more impacted than others, but we are all impacted by its rules and regulations and mandates and requirements. Major financial flaws in Obamacare included distortion by age Enforced plan designs, we've talked about this before in other parts of the broadcast. Enforced young people to pay more so that older people could pay less. Enforced the purchase of coverage that not everybody wanted or needed. It colluded with insurers by guaranteeing insurer subsidies for any insurance losses that they might occur. That's why you didn't hear an outrage from the insurance companies saying, you're taking away my private market options. You're taking away my freedom to sell in a market. You're now creating all these government controls. There was a devil's deal that was cut between the government and insurance companies to say, you offer this, and if you have any losses, we'll subsidize those losses. Don't worry. The debate will likely be resolved through political process of elections. If Democrats control Congress and the presidency, the country will move in a direction of expanded government insurance, Medicare for all or single payer. Democrats version of private health insurance would involve more Obamacare subsidies, increased regulations, and expanded Medicaid. If Republicans control the power in Washington, D.C., then the private market reforms will allow for repeal of the ACA, large group regulatory relief, something I call certificates of guaranteed coverage, which we will describe shortly, and the impaired health support group, again, part of the overall health reform that we're going to outline So here we are again at the end of our second hour. We've covered a lot of material. We've covered all sorts of things from basic principles to expected outcomes to trying to describe the market as it exists today, socialized medicine versus private insurance. I think if you stay with us, come back for next week's session, we'll actually finally get into the real nuts and bolts of healthcare reform, how to create the private market. So if you're listening to this, if you're following this, I hope the foundation has been laid, the basic concepts and principles and reasons for why we need to have private health insurance as Obamacare dies, as the election approaches us. What are we going to do about health care reform? How are we going to get the things that we need in order to protect ourselves and our families from the financial ruin of health care expenses? How are we going to get the things that we need to maintain our health? for the well-being of ourselves, our families, our society. Stay tuned. We've got a lot more to cover and a lot more detail. I hope you're enjoying this. Come back to America's Web Radio next week and look for Healthcare Insight. Thank you again for joining us. Look forward to hearing from you during the week and being able to talk to you next week. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.